Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it is simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find some internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana, Cuba, and NHK World Radio Japan. We will begin with France 24. French President Macron has announced an unpopular plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. How does this compare to other European nations? And general strikes have already been announced. In Peru, the military and police have continued murdering citizens who are protesting the Congress which ousted President Castillo. A review of the Peruvian press. Then a review of the Brazilian and international press on the aftermath of the storming of the government buildings in Brazil. Young Israelis are protesting in the streets against Netanyahu and his right-wing government. France 24. For more on France's pension reform, I'm joined on set by our foreign affairs editor, Philip Turrell. Well, the government had several choices it could make as far as these were uh, concerned, these pension reforms. The first one was, well, shall we reduce pensions to be able to take away the deficit that we face or shall we increase taxes? I don't think anybody would accept in France either of those two. So the only thing that the government says it could do was to make people work longer, to increase the pension age from 62 to 64, saying that people are living longer. There's no reason why they can't work for more years uh, instead of signing off from the labour market at the age of 62. The aim was uh, to bring in money to the state coffers. They said if they did nothing, there'd be a 13.5 billion euro deficit by the year 2030. So let's have a look and see how France fares compared to other European countries as far as pensions are concerned. France is moving up to 64 from 62, but it's still the lowest in Europe. Germany is moving up from 65 to 67, Netherlands from 66 to 67, Belgium from 65 to 67, but the highest is Denmark, which is already at 67, and they're planning uh, in the next 10 years or so to move their retirement age up to 69. And Philip, what about how France compares to other European countries in terms of their actual working week? Well, France is also one of the lowest when it comes to working weeks. Uh, there's just 35 hours uh, working, a 35-hour working week in France. If we have a look at some of the other working hours around the European Union, Greece uh, is the highest. They work for 42 hours on average a week. Uh, a couple of others here, Poland is on 40 hours, uh, Portugal on 39, France only on 35. 
Uh, Norway has 33.8, Denmark 32.9, but the lowest is the Netherlands, uh, where people there work only 30.3 hours a week. Now, the important thing to know here is that these reforms have been unanimously rejected by the unions in France. They've been rejected by all the opposition parties except for one. That's the right-wing Republicans of former President Nicolas Sarkozy and former President Jacques Chirac. They say they will back the government, but French people in general don't want this reform. 80% uh, say they are opposed. Only 16% are favourable. 68%, quite remarkable, want a return to the earlier retirement age of 60. This was the age that was brought in back in that first reform that was introduced back in 1990. Uh, there's going to be a strike next week, a widespread strike action in France on the 19th of January. Clashes between police and protesters turning bloody in Peru. On Monday, over a dozen were killed by gunfire during confrontations with security forces as protesters tried to storm an airport in the city of Hulica in southern Peru. We ask President Dina to resign because you, Dina Boluarte, are a murderer. Many people are dying because of you. You have to accept that the people don't want you. Who's going to defend us? Who's going to look after these children who are traumatised? These children who are becoming fatherless, motherless, orphans? The state isn't going to compensate us. We have wounded friends, wounded citizens. Since she took power in December, demonstrations calling for President Dina Bolate's resignation have multiplied, resulting in more than 30 deaths. Political unrest spreading through Peru that's killed dozens of people. That death toll is the focus of some of the Peruvian papers. And Deepti Laurent, our press reviewer, is here to take us through it. Deepti. Well, Alison, lots of strong opinion pieces from the Peruvian papers today. Lots of outrage as well at that deadly crackdown on anti-government protesters. Let's start with this paper here, El Comercio, one of Peru's most widely distributed papers. Uh, this columnist here, Gabriela Porta Patroni, uh, asks today, are we still in a democracy in Peru? And it's interesting, this article, in this article, she points to two examples, in particular, a shooting in a Kurdish community center in Paris recently and unrest in Brasilia this week that led to um, protests and clashes with police. The difference between those events and what's happening in Peru, however, was that nobody was killed in the events in Paris uh, uh, and Brazil, she says, uh, I quote, no matter how violent a protest is, even if it destroys public or private property, uh, the government's response cannot and should not be the murder of protesters. Uh, another Peruvian paper, El Peruano, meanwhile, uh, urges citizens to keep the ch channels of dialogue open with the government. The paper saying in its editorial today, this is really the only way that uh, Peru can move forward uh, and get out of this crisis, I quote, with no more victims in the process. The Brazilian press is focusing today on the aftermath of the ransacking of government buildings and how President Lula has promised that justice will be done. As we see on the front page of the Fola de Sao Paulo, um, far-right protesters have been hauled off. Uh, they, they are awaiting bookings in gymnasiums, as we see on the front page. Meanwhile, O Estadao de Sao Paulo, it says that ju the Justice Ministry has identified individuals who financially backed the far-right pushed, and they've come from some 10 different states across Brazil, as the Washington Post notes. Um,
the Lula administration actually knew of the risk of these protests, but was reassured that it would be not, not be necessary to boost security. Now, an investigation is ongoing into whether this new administration was intentionally misled, but the damage nonetheless has been done. As Liberation notes on its front page, it writes that Brazil's democracy is in a fragile state, warning that this could happen in any democracy. It writes that Brazil is entering into a dangerous chapter with Lula. He must weed out, the paper says in a full page spread, he must weed out the extremists. There are also calls for Jair Bolsonaro uh, to be held accountable. He is currently in Florida uh, and in a hospital since yesterday. Now, the White House is facing pressure to extradite the former president uh, back to Brazil uh, to face charges. Democracy now. Those are the words written on signs held by young Israelis in the streets of Tel Aviv on Saturday. Waving rainbow flags and carrying torches, thousands of protesters marched against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new government, considered one of the most right-wing in the country's history. I came to protest to defend my future as an Israeli and as a Jew that wants to live in a democratic and safe country. I'm sure that these uh, this demonstrations will, will grow and grow and grow, and at the end will oust this government. Netanyahu took office last month after winning the elections back in November. The 73-year-old prime minister, who is fighting corruption charges in court, has served as premier longer than anyone else. He is now at the head of a coalition with extreme right and ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties. The new government has announced worrisome policies that include expanding settlements in the occupied West Bank, introducing a program that allows parliament to override decisions of the Supreme Court, and social reforms that are raising concern among the LGBTQ community. And we can see right now uh, many laws being uh, advocated for against LGBTQ, against Palestinians, against larger minorities in Israel. And we are here to say loud and clear that all of us, Arabs and Jews and different various communities inside of Israel, demand peace, equality, justice for all of us. And that this is the home of all of us and we're going to fight for it. The opposition has accused the government of endangering Israel's entire legal system and says the latest reforms undermine its democratic institutions. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website called France24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. It has been announced that the head of one of the world's largest oil companies will be the president of this year's United Nations climate talks. In Lutzerit, Germany, police have forcibly removed hundreds of climate activists who are attempting to prevent the enlargement of a coal mining operation. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The head of one of the world's largest oil companies has been named president of this year's COP28 climate talks. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabra is chief executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. His appointment has triggered fierce criticism from climate activists. The COP28 meeting is set to take place in Dubai at the end of this year. Police in Western Germany are continuing to forcibly evict climate activists. 
from a town at the center of a battle over coal mining. Protesters moved in to stop energy giant RWE from demolishing the homes to make way for operations. The government insists the coal there is essential to maintain energy supplies. Activists dispute this. They say Germany's climate goals need to come first. One by one, police remove the activists occupying Lutzerath. Authorities say several hundred left the village voluntarily. Most others resisting peacefully as officers moved in to dislodge them from tree houses, suspended platforms and the rooftops of abandoned homes. Their goal, to stop energy giant RWE from excavating lignite, the dirtiest form of coal, from deep beneath the village. Just by burning the coal from under the village, Germany is breaking the Paris Climate Agreement. And at a time when the climate crisis is escalating, we have to make sure that emissions are drastically reduced and that's why coal mining has to stop here now. The German government has struck a deal with the energy company to phase out coal by 2030. The demolition of this village is part of a compromise. Excavate here now, spare others in the future. With the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis, coal has seen a revival in Germany. Still, experts doubt that the coal underneath Lutzerath is really needed. Our studies and also other studies show that it's not necessary to mine the coal, especially beyond um, and below the village of Lutzerath in northern Westphalia, because we do have enough coal in other areas uh, of Garzweiler and the other mining regions um, that uh, is necessary uh, to, to meet the energy transition and also the climate uh, goals. But in the end, it's energy company RWE who legally owns the village, and they want to stick to their plans. They expect profits worth several billion euros from the additional coal. The police operation to clear the activists has proved complex and highly divisive as Germany grapples with its energy transition. And I'm joined by our reporter Leonie von Hammerstein, who's on the ground for us in Lutzerath. How are things looking today? We talked yesterday when police were just starting out and um, they've progressed a lot over those past 24 hours. Uh, what you can see behind me is that they are now moving into the houses of Lützerath, the last few remaining houses where activists, um, a couple of hundred um, it is estimated, are still have barricaded themselves and we've seen over the course of the morning activists being carried out of, of this particular farm and police moving in with heavy machinery. But it's not the only house where activists are still keeping their ground. There's also still people occupying the um, somewhat over 20 tree houses in, in Lützerath. Um, but as you can see, the weather is, is pretty bad. It's, it's windy, stormy, rainy, and there's even a little bit of hail. We'll see how the, how the day goes, how long the activists, especially on the tree houses, can keep their ground. Yeah, because some of them have, have chained themselves to tree houses, I believe. Um, What's the atmosphere like there today? Yesterday things were quite peaceful. Exactly. Besides for a few um, scuffles between police and protesters in the morning with some rocks being thrown at police and fireworks. Um, and I mean, activists have told me that police has also been um, behaving violently to, towards them in a few instances. But besides that, it 
does remain pretty peaceful. A lot of the activists are being carried out of Lützerath in a very peaceful and quiet way. But police do expect um, things to maybe get a bit more heated um, in the houses today and the barns that are still occupied. And um, I talked to some activists today who say that um, they feel they still uh, want to keep their ground here. They feel pretty hopeful because they have gotten so much support. So there were a few open letters signed by scientists, but also celebrities here in Germany, and they've gotten received a lot of messages um, for support. There are protests announced today, also by Fridays for Future, and on the weekend there will be a huge protest. So they hope to, to stand their ground here. Briefly, Leone, can you explain to our international viewers why Lützerath has become the flashpoint in this long-running battle between climate protesters and coal mining firms? Well, basically, it's become kind of emblematic of Germany's, the country's struggle to phase out of the burning of fossil fuels while at the same time being in an energy crisis. You have RWE, the German government, on the one hand, who say the coal is needed. They're backed by several studies and by court rulings. And on the other hand, you have the activists also backed by studies and scientists who say this coal down here is not needed. We need to talk about the climate crisis that is happening right now and no more fossil fuels can be burned. So. You know, and, and Lützerath has become sort of the symbol of, of that debate that is going on in the country. That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Daniel Ortega, president of Nicaragua, has warned about the expansion of fascism in various parts of the world, most recently Brazil. There were large pro-democratic demonstrations in many parts of Brazil in opposition to the Bolsonarista insurrection. Radio Havana, Cuba. The president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, has warned about the reinstallation of fascism in different parts of the world. During a solemn act of installation of the 2023 legislative period of the National Assembly of Nicaragua, the president spoke about the assault of Bolsonarista groups on the headquarters of the public powers in Brazil. This has to do with the way in which fascism is reinstalling itself in the world, reinstalling itself first in the United States, in Europe, where openly fascist parties appear making their campaigns and also reaching power. And we see it now in Brazil and Bolivia, he said. He also urged them to be vigilant because terrorists are always conspiring. President Ortega recalled that former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is a fascist and that he did not hide it, as well as his racism. He went to Florida because he knows that there is the hotbed of all those who live conspiring against the peoples who fight for their self-determination, for their independence, said the president. Nicaraguan President Ortega said, Just as we defend peace, we must firmly defend justice and the application of justice against criminals. Several social organizations in Brazil took to the streets to mobilize in defense of democracy and in rejection of the attacks carried out on Sunday by Bolsonarista groups. The call was made by popular movements and unions from different sectors who shouted slogans such as No Amnesty for Fascists in reference to the people who assaulted the headquarters of the Planalto Palace, seat of the executive, the Congress and the Supreme Federal Court in Brasilia on Sunday. On account on the social network Twitter, the National Union of Students shared images of the acts in defense of democracy taking place in several parts of the country, such as Manaus, Alagoas, Pernambuco, Paulista Avenue in Sao Paulo and Brasilia. 
For its part, the Landless Rural Workers Movement, MST, also shared images of demonstrations carried out on this day to demand that the perpetrators of the attacks be held responsible. In other news from Brazil, at least 1,500 people have been detained since Sunday's assault on the Brazilian Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace by supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro in the capital Brasilia. Brazil's Justice Minister Flavio Dino told reporters the former President of the Republic, Jair Bolsonaro, and all of his followers, for example, frequently targeted attacks against the Supreme Court. That is why I say that words have power, especially when they are words of the President of the Republic. The President exercises factual material powers, but also exercises symbolic powers, which include the power of words. What we witnessed was this frequent discourse in social media gained legs, arms, stones, bullets, and bombs. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast up there or anywhere else, actually. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please, help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet, like repeat supporters in Davis and Albion, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. Japan is in its eighth wave of COVID infections, with more than 10,000 deaths in the past month. Japan and the UK have signed a military pact that Britain called the most significant agreement between them in a century. Japan and the US say they are reorganizing and expanding their military cooperation. South Korea will be holding nuclear war simulations with the United States. NHK Japan Japan is in its eighth wave of coronavirus infections. The past month has been one of the deadliest here, with the virus claiming more than 10,000 lives. That's one-sixth of all COVID-related deaths since the pandemic began. The number of deaths and cases where emergency transportation is difficult exceeded the previous record high. It's concerning. Authorities nationwide reported over 190,000 new cases on Wednesday, with 381 deaths. People aged 60 or older accounted for more than 90% of COVID deaths over the past month. Elder care facilities are struggling to operate while taking measures to prevent infections. This facility near Tokyo reported 23 cases among its residents and workers from November to December. It was the third cluster there. The health ministry's expert panel says cluster infections have been on the rise at care facilities and medical institutions. Seasonal flu has also started to spread across the nation. Panel members warn simultaneous outbreaks are possible.
The leaders of Japan and the UK have signed a pact boosting cooperation between the Japanese self-defense forces and the British military. Britain calls it the most significant agreement between the two countries in more than a century. Prime Minister Kishida Fumio was in London for talks with his British counterpart Rishi Sunak to pave the way for the G7 summit in Hiroshima in May. Kishida described Japan and Britain as global strategic partners. He said the two countries need to work closely in tackling issues facing the international community. Both leaders agree to increase bilateral security cooperation. Kishida also presented his government's policy revisions that are made to bolster Japan's defense capabilities. I explained about Japan's national security strategy, which we formulated last month. I have received positive responses from my counterparts, and we have agreed to further work together in the security field. Shida and Sadak then signed the Japan-UK Reciprocal Axis Agreement. It facilitates joint exercises and other operations between the SDF and British Armed Forces. Japan already signed a similar pact with Australia. Kishida's UK visit is the third stop in a week-long tour following trips to France and Italy. Japan's Prime Minister will spend Thursday in Canada meeting with his counterpart, Justin Trudeau, before flying to the U.S. to meet with President Joe Biden. Japan and the U.S. say they're reorganizing their defense cooperation to be more effective. It comes as Tokyo is strengthening its capability to respond to attacks and, as both countries say, they want to counter China's attempts to change the status quo. Japan's foreign and defense ministers were in Washington on Wednesday. They spoke with their American counterparts about their plans to strengthen the Japan-U.S. alliance. The joint announcement will present a vision of a modernized alliance that is poised to win. We need to take action with speed to implement this. Japanese officials discussed their country's goal of significantly increasing defense spending and acquiring counter-strike capabilities. They say having a strong deterrence is indispensable because of the region's harsh security environment. The U.S. Secretary of State praised Japan's actions and said the two countries will continue to work together. These new strategies make clear Japan's commitment to invest in enhancing its capabilities to take on new roles and foster even closer defense cooperation with the United States and our mutual partners. South Korea's defense ministry has disclosed plans to hold simulation exercises with the United States based on the scenario of a nuclear attack by Pyongyang. Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup unveiled plans for so-called tabletop drills on Wednesday. They are set to take place in February. Lee did not provide details, but Yonhap News Agency reported the exercise will be held in the U.S. The two sides are expected to discuss a coordinated response to the North's possible use of nuclear weapons. 
E said a similar exercise is being planned for May. The announcement comes as North Korean leader Kim Jong-un steps up his rhetoric. He stressed in his year-end address his country needs more warheads and intercontinental ballistic missiles. Seoul has indicated that Washington will deploy strategic weapons near the Korean peninsula more frequently. United States Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in November the U.S. had recently deployed advanced fighter jets. He added that an aircraft carrier had recently visited the South. The tabletop exercise is a way for Seoul to demonstrate America's extended deterrence commitment, including nuclear capabilities. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 9865 on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp and their podcasts are available at most podcast sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and European Union prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link there along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.